welcome to the Anesthetic Podcast. Hello and welcome to Spontaneous Ventilation, the Anesthetic Podcast. Uh, my name is Craig Griffiths, I'm with Sathena Watson and we are producing a special coronavirus series of episodes um, while everyone is in lockdown to keep you all entertained. And today we're looking at making history or rather documenting history. Uh, we've got some fantastic guests with us today um, that we'll introduce in a second. But first of all, uh, here's a little five minute catch up of uh, what we mean by documenting history. Humans have been documenting their lives ever since the Stone Age, the cave paintings that we can still see today in some places all around the world. And that has continued through to today, where we have a number of different methods of documentary. Of course, from the stone tablet, there came paper, books, and many forms of documentary, whether it be a journalistic documentary style or an autobiographical style. The first documentary films were called actuality films because they showed actual or real events. And those came in about in the uh, pre-1900s. It wasn't until 1926 where we got the first recorded term documentary by Scottish filmmaker John Grierson. It then developed in the 30s and 40s where documentaries are used not only as educational but propaganda tools for governments like Nazi Germany, America and Britain, particularly in World War II. And this continued as well as the cinematic form of documentary filmmaking that continued all the way through until the 90s, where equipment suddenly started to get smaller, less expensive and meant that documentaries could be taken from a wide variety of people, including home films. Now, the issue around hospital documentaries is a difficult one because back during World War II, the notion of consent was, particularly around documentary filmmaking, which was a brand new kind of technology, wasn't really there. And so... Now you fast forward to the 21st century, we are much more aware of consent, we are much more aware of uh, what is actually being documented, and we're aware of the techniques that can be used to potentially manipulate that. Bring it forward into the social media era, and actually documentaries take on a whole new form and a whole new meaning, which is why it's really interesting to be making history at a point where not only have we got more footage than ever, have we got more resources than ever, but we've also more aware than ever of potential infringements on our privacy, on our rights and on our person. In spite of that, we have seen some fantastic documentaries from the BBC, Channel 4, uh, ITV and Channel 5, all looking at different areas of the hospital, whether it be accident and emergency, labour ward, or whether it be the operating theatre itself. And with COVID-19, that is no different. The access that you will get in the series we're going to talk about is phenomenal, and it has been enabled by the factors we've already mentioned the, the the cheapness of technology the use of social media and the people involved's ability to understand and use documentary film appropriately and is in as sympathetic a manner as possible 
lovely. So I'd like to welcome uh, our guests here. We've got a nice balance today. We've actually got a mix of three ODPs, including Craig, and three anaesthetists, including myself. So if we start with the order on my screen, because we are doing a, a Zoom meeting, I'll start with Glenn. Perhaps you can introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm a, uh, Glenn. I'm an ODP. I uh, work in Neville Hall, Navigaveni, and I'm a photographer as well. Excellent. And David Collier? Yeah, hi, I'm David Collier. I'm also an ODP in Abergavenny and before that I was an ODP in North Bristol and I'm a photographer as well. And uh, I, I kind of don't see myself as being one before the other, really. I'm sort of lucky enough to balance both sides of, of that equation. Excellent. And our next guest is uh, Dr. David Hepburn. Hello. Yeah, I'm Dave Hepburn. I'm a consultant in the Royal Gwent Hospital and, and I work in Neville Hall as well. So I'm a consultant for NR and Bevan Health Board. Uh, and I've been kind of inadvertently thrust into the media spotlight lately um, through some documentary stuff and also a bit of social media. Excellent. All of the Twitter handles will be coming out later. And last but not least is Dr. Amy Jones. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Amy Jones. Uh, I'm an ITU anaesthetic consultant in RM Bevan as well. So like Dave, I work between the two hospitals. Uh, I'm also an air ambulance doctor for MRTS Wales uh, and I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserve. Lovely. Well, welcome to our guests. So I guess the, the first thing I, we want to know, we'll get onto the projects themselves, but how did you guys get into either documentaries or photography is it stuff that some of you have obviously done as a side project or is it stuff that just came about because of what was going on in the world when you made these projects do you want to go first glenn or shall i uh you go first mate yeah okay uh so i've been a photographer for probably 30 35 years so i i got into it in the 80s i'm i'm the son of a newspaper editor and and i spent a lot of my childhood in newsrooms and uh hanging out with press photographers and and hanging out in newspaper dark rooms and uh and going out on jobs with the press photographers and 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 actually sort of learning learning the trade from from that side and you know when i originally sort of left left college in the 80s i actually started to train as a journalist um to work for the local newspaper and then i i veered off and did something completely different but uh, i've grown up around it really i mean you know i'm i'm the kid that used to go to go to my dad's work and make his own newspapers and take take little photos and sort of put them in and things like that so it's it's, it's in my blood really it's, it's just kind of what i've always done I guess so. it's, it's, I'm, I'm one of those people that sort of wakes up in the morning and the first thing I think about is what I'm going to take a photo of that day and uh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of slightly obsessed with sort of documenting the world around me and, and it's kind of developed from there really. Excellent. And Glenn, what about you? Yeah, for, for me, um, six years ago I had no interest in photography whatsoever. Um, uh, <laughs> no one in my family is, you know, um, they don't, they don't use for you know uh, cameras. They they're just interested in sport really. So um, no, for me, my wife bought me a camera six years ago, and and that was it. You know, regarding um, you know the pandemic we we're going through, it just seemed like a really um, unique opportunity to to document the what was going on around us. Um, and you know, the first problem was getting access, and then it was on from there really. So. Um, so yeah, as I said, I had no interest in photography, and then, and then it just kicked off. And as I said, this is a unique opportunity to capture history around us, really. 
Amy, you've also been involved in uh, the book with Glenn, but you've also been doing other stuff because I've, I've seen you pop up on news uh, feeds here and there. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you've been doing during the coronavirus pandemic? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I've done a few bits and pieces for the army and for the air ambulance kind of publicity stuff. Uh, and I had a bit of media training at Sanders when I did my officer training. Um and I think once you do a little bit, you're kind of the go-to person whenever the health board or the kind of air ambulance or anybody wants someone to go and speak. Um, so I just became their media bitch, really. Um, so I think quite early on in the pandemic, um, they, they I've got a contact. When we did Helimeds at the air ambulance, which was a TV series, one of the girls I keep in touch with, who was the girl that did all the camera work for us, and she kind of said, oh, I wouldn't mind speaking to my mate, would you? And so that's kind of the first interview I did, um, you know, pretty much week one of everything starting to kick off because the health board will get in a bit of a panning. Um, and then, as I'm sure Dave will say, once you get dragged into once, you just get kind of wheeled out every time to kind of give the message. Um, so there's, a, there's a, yeah, a few bits and pieces. And then once you're at once with the health board, I kind of the air ambulance dragged me to do a couple of bits for them. And then the army got their piece in as well. Um, and then Glenn obviously decided he wanted a piece of me as well. Um, he just he wanted a few words to go with his book. So um, kind of I actually embarrassingly had food poisoning at the time when I'd agreed to do it and spent five days on and off the toilet. So I wrote the book in between uh, embarrassing <laughs> sessions of uh, <laughs> evacuation. Um, yeah, so it's all, all a bit by accident. You do one thing and you just end up in this whole world of kind of media trouble, really. And David, I, I saw you on the documentary Critical, and you've also been doing not only that, but a few other bits and pieces as well. Yeah, so for, for me, it started, we, Luke Pavey, who's a producer for um, an independent company called Frank Films, did a, a one-off documentary with us two years ago called Critical, um, just sort of following what we did in terms of care. And they came back for a series last year, a, a three-part series. And then obviously when the epidemic kicked off, um, he touched base and, you know, we were all very keen to document it. Um, but there were obviously serious issues about access. We, you know, we couldn't get families and so forth into the, to the um, unit. And, um, but... So we found a way around it that basically we said, well, chuck us a load of GoPros and we'll film it ourselves. Um, and so a combination of Zoom bits and self-shot bits, bits on phones that lots of members of staff did. And he he stitched it all together into an amazing um, uh, hour-long documentary, which went out a couple of well, a month or so ago, which just showed what we were up to in the unit. Um, as a sort of sideline to that, I I got coronavirus quite early on. I was one of the first people to go down with it, just right at the very beginning of the um, of the documentary of the uh, epidemic, rather. And I had I think 400 followers on Twitter, and I tweeted that I'd got it mm. and what was happening. Sort of as as you know, I was stuck in bed, so I didn't have much else to do. And I sort of everything kicked off from there. So then, media, various media outlets started getting in touch with me partly off the back of the documentary and partly off the back of the fact that I was sort of, you know, a doctor with coronavirus. Um, and then that sort of swelled up to sort of 16,000 followers now. And, and um, the, you know, I did an uh, interview with um, Andy Davis for Channel 4, which went a bit bananas. Um, and it was just a little bit about what we were expecting and, and how we were handling the epidemic. But it, it went sort of globally a bit viral. I think they had about two million views on, on YouTube. And then even Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses retweeted it. So that was the sort of... <laughs> 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 that is outstanding. And then, I, and, you know, as, as I'm sure Amy's found as well, I, I get approached now from a lot of media outlets because I'm kind of one of these... 
go-to guy basically so I've got a good relationship with a couple of the local papers and I it's been a good opportunity to sort of boost the public health message and um, and I've worked quite well with the comms team in the hospital as well to try and get out a, you know a little bit of public health advice and stuff so I'm, I'm happy to to be a, a, an instrument for doing that basically but it's a as I've learned going along it's a kind of it's a <laughs> it's a thorny path to tread and then um, you've got to be very careful I think that's going to um as I say, you're going to ask restaurants when it all opens to give you free meals and you'll give them lots of coverage on social media. Yeah, I've had some good offers. <laughs> <laughs> I think the key is, you know, there's a, I've seen on social media a lot of criticism about media-hungry doctors and healthcare yeah. people and what have you. But actually, I think that's sort of undervaluing the contribution that you guys have made because there's a reason why you're documenting it and there's a reason why you're discussing it and presenting it. And that, like you say, David, is the public health message and also just sharing like this is what's going on this is the experience and it's been totally uh invaluable what sort of i know you've all had amazing media sort of uh coverage what where else have you guys uh, had your work shared uh, yeah on lots of um so bbc uh we did something for bbc wales you know the showing the images and um promoting the book uh the mirror uh, and lots of other websites. Buzz Magazine in Cardiff have been quite good. Um, and yeah, so there's lots of South Wales Argus, Wales Online. Uh, again, they've they've all been brilliant, but I don't deal well with um, interviews really, so I just try to keep it short and sweet, you know, because I'm the type of guy to put my foot in it a lot of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think so, yeah. doing, I think you're doing yourself a disservice there. I think you've interviewed really well on the ones that oh, I've thank you, about. mate. Thank you. Yeah, I... Um, I don't know. It's it's a uh, it's not. I like attention on my terms, which I'm a bit of a clown, <laughs> work, you know. And um, and to have attention outside of work, I'm not a huge fan of. But but yeah, the BBC thing was great. And um, you know, my parents didn't think I was doing anything. They thought they were just messing around, you know. And so to see me <laughs> pop on the BBC, it was quite um, was quite nice, really, you know. So um, so yeah. Did you tell them before you went on, or did, was it a surprise? Oh, I told them, but. Um, okay. Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> you know, I told them that me and uh, Amy was doing a book and um, and stuff like that, but they sort of just fobbed me off, really. So that's, that's just sort of like, you know, that's just what they're like. They're like my wife, really. They pretended they heard something outside and they went, you know. So, uh, <laughs> what, so yeah, so no, there's been a few things. Glenn, what's the name of the book? Behind the Mask. Behind the Mask. And where can you get the book from? Uh, Amazon, Waterstones, WH Smith's, um, yeah, any good people, yeah. any good bookseller all the rubbish yeah, ones don't have it <laughs> and david <laughs> i should say as well in quick yeah. yeah david what about you i saw you well I won't, I won't spoil the surprise but i saw your photos in a very prestigious uh, yeah i i kind of struck gold there really i was i was quite lucky really so i mean like like glenn i've i've done a lot of the sort of local stuff, um, Wales Online, BBC Wales, you know, sort of in interviews on the the, um, the breakfast radio show on those. Um, uh, local magazines, local paper were were very interested. But I, 
I was doing another project. I, I, I'd started documenting people in my street just, just when lockdown came. And I, and I think, you know, from what I understand, I was one of the first photographers in the street to be sort of taking pictures of people from the pavement in their doorstep. And, and the Guardian heard about that and, uh, and were, were very interested. And then, of course, you know, it kind of news evolves very, very quickly. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, as a photographer, if you, if you think you've had an original idea, you're very, very naive because, you know, a hundred other people have had the same idea at the same time. And of course, you know, we're living, living through a historical period and, and every photographer who suddenly had all his commissions cancelled is going to think, what can I do to go out and, and take photos? So, so everyone started doing that. But during this conversation that I was having with the picture editors of The Guardian, um, I just happened to mention that I was shooting at the hospital. And uh, and they bit my hand off for it. They were they were you know really really interested and and so they wanted they asked me to um, to submit something to to go online and and they asked if they wanted uh, if I wanted them to send a journalist or or to get a journalist phone to um, to interview me or if uh, I wanted to write something myself and because I'd already written the intro for the book I just thought well I'll actually just sort of kind of use that and, and actually use the Guardian online piece as, as an advert for the book and so this kind of went on for a, for a week or so and then went, went very very quiet and, uh, and I thought oh, well you know it's probably been spikes New, news, has, news has moved on again they've got somebody else to do it and, and then I got um, an email saying we're going to go online and put something in print tomorrow can you send us a profile picture so so I did and it sort of flashed up on my phone the next morning that, that it had gone Guardian online and I thought that's fantastic I'll sort of call in at Bailey's Garage in Abergavenny on the way to work and uh, pick up a copy of the Guardian because you know I've probably got two columns on uh, on page 27 and I was on my bike and I cycled up to the newsstand and and uh, I looked down at the newsstand and just went fuck fuck and there was my picture that I'd taken of Sarah one of the ODPs on the front page and I just thought Bloody hell! I, 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 felt, I almost fell off a bike. I thought, no, this isn't real. I'm, I'm, I'm hallucinating. So, but I picked up every single copy that they had in the newsstand, and uh, and opened it up, and I had double page spread inside as well. And, uh, and so I phoned my dad, and he said, oh, because you know he, he was a journalist, obviously. You know, at some at one point he worked for the Guardian, and uh, and uh, he said, oh, I saw your piece online. Very good, very good. And I said, yeah. I said, I got the front page as well. He went, oh, good, go. Have a good any chronicle. And I went, no, no, I got the front page of the Guardian, and I could hear the sound of cornflakes being spat out as I uh, <laughs> as, as I spoke to him. And uh, so yeah, so that was really bizarre. And I kind of I sort of walked into work with a huge grin on my face and went up to Sarah and said, "Have you seen the papers this morning?" And she went, "No, why?" And I held up a copy of the Guardian in front of her. I went, "That's you." And she just kind of looked at me. and went, "Oh my god!" You could just see her completely silent for a while. So yeah, so it all went a bit mental after that. Mm. And and because I shoot film as well, I've, I kind of I'm in a niche market. So all of a sudden, lots of sort of international film websites and and blogs and uh, and magazines are interested in me as well, and they're doing articles about me. So yeah, it's kind of it's certainly raised my stock in uh, in the photography world. It's been quite an interesting journey. And Amy, t- tell us a bit more about your sort of news and the um, media work you've been doing. And I'm I'm also interested to know about the media training and how you applied what you in this sort of high stakes uh, sort of passionate environment that we're in at the moment yeah so mine was all a bit accidental uh ended up on itv and bbc and did uh bbc breakfast was a bit of a giggle i didn't quite i didn't really watch it so i didn't realize what a big deal it was but dan walker kind of retweeted it and i was just doing my usual quite blunt well this is terrible all these young people are dying you know you've got to be quite serious about this because that's the kind of public health message we were, we were kind of trying to push as dave said you know we, we, we've got no 
there's no interest in this to us other than to try and kind of push the public health message to keep people at home. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, I did that. Um, and then multi, I think that, that one got picked up by quite a lot of, I think I ended up in the daily mail, which is horrific because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> was a low point really. And they don't ask you, you know, they just, they cut and paste bits off that they want. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's the worst bit. And I, I much prefer doing the live stuff because it's, an ed, you know, it is, it is, it is. And kind of, you've got control over what you say, but when you do some recorded stuff or people lift stuff out of it, um, they can just kind of misconstrue it and pick any headline they want. And even if you're really careful and say, I, we had a little bit of media training at Sandhurst where we had kind of journalists that would come and kind of give you a situation that was, you know, quite emotional and emotive and, and, and pretend you were kind of one of the senior soldiers or officers and that you had to kind of give a, a brief about it. And they try and kind of needle at you and pick stuff out of you. Um, and, and really it's just kind of decide your messages before and really try and anything that you think is contentious, just try and deflect it and, and flick it back into your own message. Uh, and so I, I'm always quite wary of, um, you know, not not dropping myself in it and not not getting on into contentious stuff. And if I really, you know, I mean, I got, I got asked a few things that were a bit dodgy. You know, a lot of people asking me, "Oh, have you had PTSD? Have you been tested for Corona?" And I, I, I didn't mind ask, answering those, but I think anything more political, I would have just deflected it. Um, as I'm sure Dave will talk about, it's a pretty thorny path, and you have to be quite careful. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I'm normally just very kind of clear about what messages I'm willing to talk about. And, and I mean, you often have a chat to the people that are going to do these things before they come and do the actual interview. So you know kind of roughly what they're going to ask, but you're never quite sure if they're going to throw you a curveball. You've got to be so careful. I mean, I, I um, was in the sort of fortunate position that I got to turn down one very sort of right-wing tabloid um, who wanted to use the photos. And, and I typed the reply to them, and then I sort of counted to 10 and sat back and thought, <laughs> no, I can't send that. So I just uh, I declined them very politely because I, I just had it in the back of my mind that these people will bite you, you know, and all of a sudden I'll, I'll, I'll find, you know, one of my pictures, you know, the picture of Lauren sitting in a box or, or somebody slumped against a wall. And, and the next thing you know, you know, you've got a lazy nurse on the front page of a tabloid uh, newspaper, you know, taken out of, out of context completely. And uh, you've, it's, it's a really difficult game to play when you when you're dealing with the media particularly the, the, the less savory elements of the media as well what sort of other controversies of, of any or problems or pitfalls of any of you had with this experience i reckon dave hepburn can answer this one i think um it's interesting. There's so I, I I would much prefer like the rest of the guys to to talk directly to the press. And I've had a few um, situations where I've maybe tweeted stuff and it's been just ripped off my Twitter feed and used to create an article. And it's not just the local rags that do that. It's um, you know the Guardian did it as well. So I, one of my my pin tweet on on my um, Twitter feed is is something a little bit about, is a little bit about ITU rehab and saying. It takes a long time to get over ITU. You know, patients get PTSD. It needs a whole team of practitioners to get you better. Um, and I, I thought that was quite important. And I see I was getting a lot of traffic, and I thought it was probably worth emphasising that. So I, I pinned it to my feed. Um, I got approached by a Guardian journalist, and I just didn't get back to him because I had loads of other stuff going on. And then a couple of days later, there was a whole article in the Guardian about you know the, the hardships of getting over ITU, and it was literally a cut and paste job from you know Dr Hepburn tweeted this, this, and this. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of lazy journalism, I think. I, I, um, so you, you've got to be very careful. What you, I'd much rather talk directly to people than um, that. You know, it's not much you can get over in two hundred fifteen 
characters, is there? So um, that, I've definitely fallen foul of that a few times. A couple of times with the local papers, Wales Online and stuff. And I, I, I can't remember what I said now. It was a, I was strongly objecting to something. Oh, I, and I had some strong opinions about the Stereophonics concert. I, I think I said that, um, <laughs> you know, there was a big concert in Cardiff just before the, just before lockdown. It was the Cheltenham races and there was a big concert in the CIA. And I said, you know, retrospectively now, that seems like an insane thing to have done. And uh, it was the front, and, you know, they never interviewed me, but it was front page, you know, you know, top doctor, <laughs> um, you know, Slate. So I've got into a beef now with the Stereophonics, who are a band I, I quite like. And um, it, it was literally a cut and paste job. And, then, and I, I was quite cross about that, actually. But I emailed the editor and I said, look, I'm quite happy to talk to you. And I, it's, it's reasonable that you're representing my views. But that's, man has an opinion, is not really front page news. I'm not really getting, and actually we've built a relationship since then. And they, they'll call me now about things and say, look, do you want to comment on this or, or not? And I've tried to keep it really as apolitical as I can and just try and get a, a public health message out. And I think that there are a lot of medical commentators out there talking about, you know, there's a lot of kind of suffering porn out there and, you know, I won't name any names, but there are some fairly well recognized um, sort of media doctors who are, you know, telling stories of patients dying and things like that. And, and um, I'm not sure that feels a bit intrusive to me, I, I, I did it once, and um, yeah, I just said, you know, I someone young and young die, and the family couldn't get in, and it's, you know, it's a terrible situation to be in, and and it went banana like that. Of all the tweets I've ever done, it went absolutely bananas, and um, about fifty thousand, and then I had Good Morning Britain chase me about it, and um, I I deleted it actually because I. I, I felt quite uncomfortable around it, even though there was nothing identifiable on it or anything like that. I just, it's got to be so careful. Um, but I, I it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting position to be in because it's, it's nothing, something I never really wanted. And I don't, you know, I don't have a profile to push. I don't think I'm getting anything out of it particularly. Um, but I, I think if it's helped it from a public health point of view, then, then, I'm, then I'm quite happy. And, and, you know, the feedback I've had from Public Health Wales and stuff is, has been good. So I'm quite happy to keep pushing the message to, you know, stay at home, et cetera, if, if that helps people. So um, I think that the, the public are off, are maybe distrusting of the mixed messages coming from the politicians. And I think they are more likely to trust, you know, clinicians on the ground. So I think that we, we you know, we are in a unique position to just sort of let people know what's going on on the front line. But equally, it's a very, very tricky path to tread. I mean, I try and keep my political opinions well away from it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's interesting you because I think you're right. I think the thing that happened with coronavirus is everyone got scared and it wasn't necessarily that doctors, medics, ODPs were hungry for attention. It's that people were like, well, who's going to be, who should we actually listen to? Yeah. Oh, why don't there are, Oh, there are doctors on Twitter. Let's just listen to what they say. Um, and I think it's interesting, all of you being clinicians and yet doing all this documentary stuff, because I always see documentaries as, yeah, you you might put it through a, a certain lens, but it, a lot of it is here, here. Here's here's what we've recorded. Here's what we've documented. Take from it what you will, but this is kind of 
as objective as it's going to be. Um, and it's interesting that different places put agendas on that. Um, what I want to know is at what point in this, I know some of you were approached rather than sort of sort of getting your cameras out and stuff like that. But at what point of the kind of pandemic did you guys think or realize this is something that we need a record of? This is something I need a record of or, or I need to be a part of since they're asking me to do it. I think from my perspective, as soon as the WHO declared it a pandemic, you know, you suddenly become acutely aware that you are about to be entering a period in history which which needs to be recorded. Um, you know, we won't go through, well, you know, we, we don't really go through that many pandemics, do we? When you think back to when the last major pandemic was, you know, the Spanish flu in, in 1918, you know, it's 100 years down the line. So to be able to be there and actually to sort of record that for posterity is quite a privilege. I mean, I'd, I'd spoken to a couple of the senior medics so over the last couple of years about possibly doing a documentary shoot of Neville Hall for the for the last year of its existence in its sort of current state before we go into the Grange. I'd have been sort of umming and ahhing about doing that. But, but of course, as soon as COVID came along, you know, that, that gave me even more impetus to, to pick up a camera and, and, and shoot it. Really. I think um, Sorry. the other thing is that access, the, the thing that's made this unique is that the access has been so difficult. So uh, I would use Ross Kemp's documentary that he filmed at Milton Keynes as a good example of that. They obviously wanted to film a documentary inside an ITU to show people what was going on. I think there was a legitimate public interest there, but they were absolutely pilloried. The chief exec got death threats. Um, you know, people like, quite rightly, actually, you know, we, we can't see our families who are dying. Why, why is, you know, Grant Mitchell strutting around? <laughs> um, it's a fairly valid point, I thought, on that documentary. I think is, you know, that's, that's fair enough. So I think that because access has been so limited, I and mean, there hasn't been much, so there's obviously been the documentary, the, you know, the flagship one, the, the Royal Free, the, the BBC's hospital programme. Um, there's been a few news bits here and there, but I mean, we were inundated with, you know, really good, you know, the Channel 4, who, who we've got a very good relationship with now, were really, really keen to come and do a bit inside. I think they got into the Heath in the end, uh, at the University Hospital in Cardiff, but um, kind of later on. But, but um, it, it, it's, you know, access has been limited. And I think in particular for you guys, the photographers, you know, it's it, absolutely, if you look back through all the major crises of the last 150 years, you know, the photography is the thing that stands out. And you look at everything we know about the world has yeah. come from documentary photography, really. You know, everything that we have, that we have an image of. Yeah, it's more powerful than, than, than video documentary, I think. Yeah. And, and those strong, strong images. Yeah, I mean, you think about like Frank Capra's photos of the Spanish Civil War, okay. yeah. you know, the, the, the D-Day landings photos or anything like that. These are iconic um, images. And, and I think because there is a paucity of it, you know, there's, there's, there isn't that much coming out of this, that, that you know, your images in particular that you, you guys have shot are absolutely, a, 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 you know, amazing document of, 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 of how, things, how things have been. 
I've spoken to um, yeah. to quite a few photojournalists and picture editors since this has all happened. It's, it's really bizarre, you know, the, the the sort of degree of success and, and exposure that, that Glenn and I have had, of, uh, you know, speaking from my own perspective anyway, have suddenly put me in, in touch with lots of people who, you know, I've got their books on my shelves and, you know, all of a sudden yeah. they've had to be as friends on Facebook, you know, we're having conversations about it. And, and quite a few of them have said, you know, we just haven't had access. We, nobody's given us access. And I think, I think what Glenn and I have been really, really, lucky to do is you look at that there were one or two photographers who went into hospitals not just here but but worldwide and every press photographer who goes into hospital is going to shoot the same shot so it's going to be it's going to be the patient on the bed with with masked medics around them and and actually once you've seen that once you've kind of seen you've seen it and there's nothing more you can do with that shot but what glenn and i have brought to it is that we've got that intimacy because we're almost like a family in a small hospital yeah and the people that we're shooting are our friends so you know after the first couple of days of shooting everyone breaks the, the barrier is gone really and they forget the camera's there and you know we both shoot in a very very different way in a different style but but what we've both managed to bring to it is that intimacy in the shots and i think that's what's made the project really powerful what's the difference yeah. Yeah. so you two so glenn sorry i'm interrupting you right. because you both work in the same hospital and it's quite a small hospital yeah. and yeah. two really excellent photographers working in there is there anyone in the hospital that hasn't had their photo taken yet <laughs> Oh, recovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, but well, they never move. You know, I mean, I, I put the camera on a tripod. I did the thirty-six second exposure, and it wasn't blurred at all. You know, <laughs> <laughs> your sort of style yeah. photography. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, what I knew this had to be documented. The first time I sort of, I was working trauma, and Amy Jones, uh, she popped in to have a word with. I don't know what Trinity to sit was, but she was talking about, you know, the pandemic in Italy and everything and that we should be worried. And I absolutely shit myself at that moment. I thought, you know, we're gonna, I was supposed to have knee surgery that I put off and, and, um, and yeah, so at that moment, I thought this could be something uh, like David, he's got, uh, you know, influences and, and certain people like Mary Ellen Mark and Sally Mann, people like that is what I'm into. And I thought this is a chance to document it here as well. Um, you know, it was, you know, Neville Hall is quite a, it's a, it's not like every hospital, you know, Sadina knows, Amy knows, and, and David, it's really chilled out. Um, access for me, I mean, um, and I shoot was for David, I rang the comms team and yeah. talked to our theatre manager, and it was, it was fairly straightforward. It's just, you know, you walk around the theatre with a camera, they think you're carrying a gun. Yeah. So, you know, there's some people, you know, some people didn't want their image taken and that was, and that was fine. But, um, but yeah, the first time I knew it had to be documented was when Amy came in and, um, and mentioned about, you know, how we need to be prepared for it, really. So how did it, you and Amy work together then? Um, how did you guys get to work together on this book? Well, originally it was sort of, I knew me and David were, were documenting it, obviously, and, um, you know, I needed some writing there in there as well. I mean, I do a bit of writing, but nothing like you know Amy's level or anyone, anyone I know really. But um, but yeah, so I thought, right, I'll ask Amy to write, you know, just the forward to it, and and then the publishing company wanted a bit more writing, and and that was it really. All I had to do was ask her, and it was done within like thirty six hours. Um, Between toilet yeah. breaks. Between toilet breaks, yeah, she was, um, yeah, um, and um, and yes, yeah, so I sent to the writing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I sent her some images, and and 
explained what I've taken photos of, you know, ITU, obstetrics, uh, theatres and, and anything I could really. And yeah, she put words to it. It was, she made the publisher cry, which was, um, oh. which she, she wasn't impressed with. <laughs> no, what a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a fat pussy, wasn't it? <laughs> um, so this, my, oh, Craig, you're probably going to ask, you ask the same question then. No, no, I don't know. I was going to say, was, Amy, so you, you were probably one of the, like, I suppose Army Connections, you were probably one of the first that knew the seriousness of this and therefore what was potentially going to be coming. How did that sort of translate into when you were then thrust into, like, media spotlight? Um I think I'd be following it quite closely. The army were not too worried about it particularly. Now, we were still having drill nights and they were planning all sorts of exercises and stuff. And I was kind of thinking, none of this stuff's going to happen. And I, I just was following it. And I was thinking, this is, going to get, this is going to go bad. And a couple of weeks before, I was kind of sitting in meetings where they were talking about, oh, yeah, next month. And I'm thinking, next month we're going to be, you know, absolutely balls deep in COVID. I don't know, you know, how is no one realising this? Um, and, and I started basically just trying to shake my colleagues up a little bit, saying, guys, like, we've got to take this seriously. Um, and we, we started, you know, everyone kind of eventually took me seriously and we started doing a bit of preparation and training. Uh, and then I suppose fortunately or, or unfortunately, I happened to do a couple of local weekends in the Gwent uh, and they probably got a couple of COVID patients in the first weekend I was there. Yeah. Um, and we ended up, uh, we had pretty busy kind of shift. I think we tubed three patients in 12 hours and I was kind of like, oh, this is the tidal wave that I've been reading about. You know, this is going to be Italy all over again. Uh, and, and in a way, the poor old went got smashed. You know, they, they got hit much, much earlier than, than the rest of Wales. Neville Hall was maybe a week, 10 days behind, but it gave me a bit of time to get to Neville Hall and, you know, really, really thrash them and drill them uh, and get everyone ready for it, really. Um, and then I think because I'd been in the Gwent and had that experience, and, and I say, I, I just got a contact through Helimeds with ITV. Um, they were kind of like, oh, would you mind, you know, coming and having a chat? And, and at the time, the health board was getting pretty hammered by the media because, um, we, we got very, very, you know, we were, we were more than any, any other health, well, all the health boards combined, we had more cases. Um, mm. and, and so we, we were a hot spot uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't feel it was our fault. I thought it was just bad luck. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go and take one for the team and I'll do this chat. And I didn't realize that they were kind of throwing that, you know, how, why is your health board so bad? Why do you think your swab numbers are so bad? What, how have you got so many positives? Um, so I did have to go, you know, straight back a few back at them. Um, and then I think because the comms team were quite pleased with how that went, uh, that's it. As Dave says, you, you get wheeled out for all of the things. And every time that somebody wants something in an Iron Bevan, uh, it's either me or Dave Hepburn gets wheeled out. I think if they want someone nice and fluffy to tell something quite poetic, they get Dave out. And if they want someone to give them a bollock in, they get me out. <laughs> so they, they kind of pick good cop, bad cop, really. And it's either me or Dave. So what I was going to say is there's one uh, phrase that keeps coming up, which is a phrase that I want to come up to. It's the comms team. Um, yes. Something uh, that we need to talk about because I- I'm not sure. Well, I know that actually many doctors uh, are not aware that really if you're going to have any sort of media uh, involvement, you absolutely have to run it through the comms team. And quite often uh, you can get a flap no you can't do that or you can't say that. And there are very good reasons uh, behind that. But I want to know, how on earth did you guys get all this through? I found it really easy, really easy. So I went, immediately went to theatre managers. And then from there, I thought, well, once I've got those on board, I'm going to go straight to the top. So I went to Judith Paget and spoke to the CEO. And then by the time I came to the comms team, um, Judith had already emailed them and given it the go-ahead, as had um, Steve Edwards, who's another one of our senior clinician so so they were absolutely fine they they really gave me 
carte blanche to to shoot and write what I wanted. Uh, and they wanted to see whatever I was putting out there, but but not to vet it, just to make sure that if any flack did come back, that they could cover my ass, basically. So yeah, well, every, everyone's been absolutely brilliant. The comms team has been fantastic. They gave you carte blanche. Did they trust you, or was it something? Yeah. About- Pitch. What? What was? He's got got something on him. I mean, I I told them what my background was in in photography, um, and and you know that I had a journalistic background, but also that I was quite keen to keep my registration and uh, and my job with the trust. I wasn't going to be doing anything stupid. Um, But they were fine. I mean, Karen Newman, who was was the the contact that I dealt with in the comms team, was was brilliant. I mean, she she was incredibly trusting. Yeah. Karen, that the... who's the head of comms and James Hodgson, who James Hodgson, who's the deputy head of comms, have been brilliant. Mm. And we've really built a relationship with them, um, and they are very pragmatic. I mean, we, we dealt with them a bit because of the documentaries that we'd done before, um, so they kind of knew us a little bit and they knew our kind of area of expertise and, and the kind of ground we'd be covering. But um, they've been fab, and and I yeah, I would absolutely repeat what what you said you know that um going through the comms team if if you're new to this and you're going to be commenting on 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 anything really it's always worth running it by the comms team certainly early on i was getting them to pre-vet any you know any interview questions that were coming up particularly the the, the press ones um after a while they realized that i wasn't going to land them in hot water and that i could be wheeled out without causing too much trouble and um and we've just built a relationship for, from there basically so um but i talk to them a lot i, I probably speak to james uh, uh, on a weekly basis about what's coming up and who's who's been in touch and and there is something every week you know that it's the bbc this week and and it was itv last week and there's, there's various people approaching us i mean at one point in the real high point of the thing after the channel 4 interview and when covid was really blowing up just before the documentary went out we got absolutely inundated and we we had to say no to quite a lot of stuff just because partly because of there were a few outlets we knew that we didn't particularly they hadn't really reflected things in a good light and not not from for me but for for the organization in the past so we're a little bit not punishing them but we we knew there were certain people who weren't necessarily reliable to represent what the message that we wanted to get across i think that's really important is knowing what message you want to you know you need to have a, a plan of what 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 is it that you in in a couple of sentences what is it you want to get across and and are these people going to allow you to get that message forward. Obviously, they've got an agenda of information they want to get out of you, and you kind of meet in the middle. But um, it's, um, you know, building a relationship with the comms team, that's that's the absolute key. And I, I, we're very lucky in that our comms team have been open-minded and they've trusted us, uh, all of us, actually, um, to do this. And, and um, you know, I think it's, it's actually reflected very well on the organisation and they've had a really good strategy. But I'm sure there are other comms teams in for different hospitals that aren't as um, flexible. I think as well, Dave, it's remembering everybody you represent. So every time I did something, um, you know, I, it wasn't just an Aaron Bevan. Uh, if there was going to be anything to do with the air ambulance, I had to speak to their comms team. And particularly the last one I did the other Ooh. week about, uh, you know, this um, the combat stress kind of PTSD is, is the NHS can need the same support. I had to get really high military clearance to do that interview. Um, so you have to be really, and, and I'm, I think I'm a little bit the same about what I tweet. You know, I, I'm representing all those organisations and anything I say could put the army into disrepute. And so I'm probably even more cautious than, than most people because, you know, the army will come down on me like, like a ton of bricks 
if I step out of line really with things like that, they really don't like it. Um, and so I think anyone going into this, um, you know, at the start, I mean, as Dave said, the, our comms team are brilliant. Um, I'd not done lots with them before, um, but they let me do ITV live first off. And, and cause I did a reasonable job. I've done a little bit of live stuff before. They were kind of like, you know, as Dave said, they give you pretty much carte blanche other than just filtering out a few of the places they didn't really want you to talk to. I remember, I think there was a particular radio show that was a bit political and they said, oh, you know, we'd really rather you didn't do that because we don't want to get into a political thing. We just want to, you know, we just want to talk about mm. the public health message. Uh, and so I think it's, it's going into the right interviews. And as I say, you know, being quite clear about what you will and won't talk about. Um, and I, I have said on some of the pre-interviews, you know, if you're going to try and drop my organisation in it or try and push this, push that, I said, I'm just going to straight bat it back and you're not going to get the answer you want. Um, so I think it's quite important to make sure they're not going to try and trip you up. And if they do, just, you know, smash it back at them. Mm. I think it's very much the same, you know, same for me. It, it's, you know, it was the comms team, as we've already said, they were absolutely amazing. And it's, I'm very paranoid. You put camera with hospital and it's just, you know, you've got to be very careful. I sent around 500 images that they're thinking of using for the book and to Karen Newman and, um, and James Hodgson. And within 24 hours, they sent, you know, a bit of guidance back. Just be careful. There's not a patient label in this. Um, and, you know, it's, um, and then there's just being sensible. Today I was photographing in the mortuary in the Royal Gwent Hospital and, you know, tasteful photos, you know, we, we're not taking pictures of, you know, patients or, you know, or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, it's just being sensible about what you put on, you know, especially social media. As Amy said, you're representing the, you know, the trust or what have you. And, um, and, you know, even if you delete something, someone's taken a print screen of it and it's, it's all over then. So it's, it's just doing, you know, it's doing right by everyone, I think, and, you know, keeping yourself out of trouble. So that was it for part one of Making History. Come back for part two where we discuss the process and challenges involved in documenting coronavirus behind the scenes in the hospital live and where each of our practitioners is going next.